starting my timer. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Um, for those of you that I haven't met, my name is Fusho. I'm an assistant teacher here at uh, Village Zendo. And I wanted to um, <clears throat> welcome everybody who's just joined us, although I think they're off doing something secretive. <laughs> I had a whole spiel for them. <laughs> they can check in with me later. <laughs> I can give them my advice. <laughs> Ask them if their knees are hurting, because mine are. Um, I just wanted to say that I, I actually can't express the gratitude that I felt and I'm still feeling um, for being able to be here in person all together um, after all this time. And uh, I want to say hello to those of you who are watching at home. Send some love if you're listening. I want to take a minute to thank um, the American Indian tribes here uh, that came before us, including the Nipmuc, Mohegan, Pequot, and Neantic. And for some reason, I'm feeling very um, compelled to thank our other ancestors who have been here long before us and will be here I think after us, and that's um, the trees who gave us this building and this paper and more than we can ever imagine. I've been walking a little bit out around here and the trees are magnificent and they are definitely luminous. So I hope you can go um, share in their luminosity while you're here. I think, you know, no matter how long we've all been sitting at home on our own with a community or if we're just starting, I want to say please don't underestimate this gift that we're giving ourselves and you're giving yourself. And in turn, others around us by coming and sitting here with our intentions to practice and do the most challenging work, the work of turning inward towards whatever it is we've been going through, whatever it is we're currently experiencing. And as we're learning with our study text, the work is to just allow the luminosity of perfect knowing to display itself and to experience the display of luminosity in which body and mind are single. Or, as, as it's been said, to bathe in the ocean of awake awareness. Um, but I know that can feel really daunting. Coming here, not knowing what it's going to be like, in particular after having not done it for so long, Talk about not knowing, being out of practice. Didn't even know what to expect because we didn't do it last year. 
but it's definitely easier to do when we're able to sit shoulder to shoulder and be together. And we have to keep doing what Roshi encouraged us, even if we didn't just arrive, which is to just jump in and to throw body and mind into the great treasury of luminosity and not look back. Because, boy, have we been through it. I felt uh, a wave of very unexpected emotion. And I think it was grief, but also gratitude and just joy when I arrived and we had our first full sit together. I think that the experience of loss and trauma and terror that the entire world has felt for the last two and a half years kind of hit me. Um, you know, we're not exactly on the other side of it, but we're certainly closer and we're at least able to be here together. And I just felt so grateful for that. And in the midst of um, all of the global crisis that we've been through, I also experienced a personal crisis. Um, it's been about a year since I was diagnosed I had with um, early stage breast cancer and started treatment, full gamut of treatment. So that took about at least 10 months, all different. Um, still at the end of it, but definitely on the other side of that. So, you know, that's been um, a different type of processing now that, <laughs> I guess now that my hair isn't quite as on fire. <laughs> you know, there's a different type of survival mode um, that we can go into. Um, and now I'm just sort of coming down from that, I guess. And in a way, I think that's what we're all doing in different ways. Sort of getting back to our new selves. You know, I just want to make sure that we can um, acknowledge it instead of just straight running forward, thinking that we're getting back to something. Um, and this is a perfect place to take time to let whatever needs to come up to come up um, and come out. Because I think we're seeing the results um, that can happen when we don't acknowledge the suffering that we've all been through. You know, just read the first page of the newspaper or walk down the street and you'll notice how all of this has affected people. Um, I guess my experience with my personal crisis, um, I'm still processing, but I would say that I approached it as somewhat as what uh, the way Gesho talked about um, what she decided to do with her suffering, how she decided to do something different with it, by sitting with it and by facing it. So I, yeah, I did that more like a, um, 
<laughs> not really a decision. It was like a, like a life raft, I would say, to sit with it. Um, but uh, I was able to be present to, you know, the fear, um, of that experience of how precious life and death really is. And that feeling of impermanence that we talk about, which is our reality, um, it sounds glamorous, but actually can be very terrifying, right? There's a flip side of impermanence, which is really scary. Um, the fact that things do change and things can happen very unexpectedly. That is for sure. We know that that's true. But if we can connect with those feelings as those things are happening um, and examine them underneath the story, see what that feels like, I think we usually find that those things aren't solid. Um, they're real, but they're not fixed, and they shift. And so as we examine whatever that is that's coming up and acknowledge it, uh, it can shift and change. And that in itself is a type of freedom that can help uh, with the way that we work with our suffering. So let's take Ashuso's advice and not just be gentle with ourselves. Let's acknowledge what we've been through. And I, I say make space to be extra, extra, extra gentle so that we can be available and present to the next moment as it arises in our lives. And so that we may start to glimpse the wondrous and inconceivable subtle luminosity that is always here around us and within us and always available to tap into. I think a lot of us come to retreat and come to this practice because uh, in general, I don't think we live in a world that teaches us how to take care of ourselves. And I mean, by taking care, I mean how to attend to ourselves and particularly how to trust that we are the ones that can do that for ourselves. And we definitely don't live in a world that teaches us how to trust ourselves. I mean, I'm speaking um, as a woman in particular. I don't think the world particularly teaches women how to trust themselves. Uh, I can feel, for me lately, like just when I thought we were making progress in this area, um, seem to be going backwards. But I do think that both of those things, like caring and attending to ourselves and trusting ourselves, perhaps they're all the same thing, are something that arises naturally as we're sitting on our cushions and as we learn to pay attention to what's going on inside and as we investigate our minds and notice the comings and goings of thoughts and emotions as we settle down and allow ourselves to be supported by this container 
we can be less pulled around by states of mind or objects, and we can stop relying on intellectual knowledge. And in fact, I'm here to say, we can become more comfortable in the midst of impermanence, even in the midst of our suffering. And we won't need to ask anyone what is right and what is wrong. Uh, for me, the paradox has always been this idea of trusting ourselves while resting and not knowing. Um, you know, there's a saying about what this practice can feel like. A student told a teacher it feels like being thrown out of an airplane with no parachute. And the teacher said, well, the good, is, good news is you don't have a parachute, but there's no ground. <laughs> and of course, our lives can feel like being thrown out of a plane with no parachute. And when we practice for a while and we start to discover there's no ground, that doesn't necessarily help. It can be really terrifying and painful to discover that there's no ground. But the thing that I would change about this saying is that this practice can be the parachute. And particularly coming here and being together in order to support each other in this practice while we navigate the fact that there's no ground is how we realize that Sangha and our community is the parachute. Or in some cases, at least it's a seatbelt for us to use on this roller coaster that we call life. And our practice and our teachings are always pointing us to the middle way. So being comfortable and not knowing doesn't mean you don't need to have a plan or any motivation or any intention. But it does mean let's try not to cling to the outcome. Not pushing away, not clinging. How do we do that with our suffering? And when we say sit with it, what do we mean? Uh, I wanted to mention one way of saying it, which is um, what the Jewish side of my family would say. Uh, expect the worst, but hope for the best. Another way, I think the more Zen way, would be um, we can bear witness to it. We can acknowledge it and investigate it with gentle awareness. And I think Ashisho is right that this practice doesn't make our suffering magically go away, but it helps with ways to work with our suffering. I'm checking my timer. My dear friend and our beloved Sangha member, Yuka, who died in April, taught me to ask the best question I think we can ask when we're bearing witness to someone who's going through a painful or difficult time. She said she had some Native American teachers who taught her to ask, what's the worst of it? And she added, honey, 
to that saying. So she added, what's the worst of it, honey? Which I just loved. And I, and I love the idea of asking somebody who's suffering that question. And I love the idea of asking ourselves that question so that we can express it and release it. I found that when we can do that, just that space by expressing what's the worst of it can be a really big release and it can offer a shift, tiny shift that can bring some relief. It can bring a new perspective about change the way we see something just to allow us to breathe a little easier. Perhaps allow a moment of luminosity to arise naturally. So then we can respond immediately when somebody calls. This is the practice of ordinary mind, the complete practice of the treasury of luminosity. And this is inconceivable freedom. In the midst of impermanence, this luminosity is unobstructed. Let's not underestimate that freedom to see ourselves differently or to respond differently, even this much. To see our partners differently as if we hadn't looked at them closely before. What about those trees I just noticed out there for the first time? What about walking down the street and noticing who's next to you or who you're sitting next to on the subway? The study text tells us you are a child of the awakened one, so sit calmly in your own seat. And that can be the biggest challenge in this time right now. It can be really hard to find hope. But cutting out distractions and trusting ourselves and this container and continuing to practice is one good way. And when we look closely, we can find other hopeful ideas and ways to look and turn. And I find it in the words lately of um, the very young black poet, Amanda Gorman. Uh, she was selected by Biden, President Biden to read her poem the hill we climb for his inauguration. And during the pandemic, um, she wrote a book. Like a, it's a huge, beautiful book of poetry, <laughs> expressing a lot of what we had been going through collectively. She is 24. Um, she grew up in LA. And she started uh, her own organization called One Pen, One Page which is an organization providing free creative writing programs for underserved youth. And one of the last lines of one of her poems is, to love just may be the fight of our lives. To love. So to practice with the treasure of luminosity can be to love. And when we're looking for what to fight for, what to do, what to believe in, uh, here's the last stanza of her poem. It's called Fugue. 
by hello, we mean, let us not say goodbye again. There is someone we would die for. Feel that fierce, unshifting truth, that braced and ready sacrifice. That's what love does. It makes a fact based beyond fear. We have lost too much to lose. We lean against each other again, the way water bleeds into itself. This glassed hour, paused, bursts like a loaded star, belonging always to us. What more must we believe in?